friends and fiends. Spielberg fiends. Spielberg friends. Listeners, welcome to the show. The good, the pod, and the ugly. Off to a great start. Yeah, you nailed that. Should we start record- Are you recording? <laughs> uh, uh, it, we're, this is the good, the pod, and the ugly. It's the Steven Spielberg season called A Bigger Boat. The Bigger Boat. Um, we, if you, a bigger truck. If, if you follow us online at the good, the pod, and the ugly dot ru, um, you will see that we have a, a VR component where if you put your ocular Oculus mask to it, um, it puts you in a VR world where you're like seeing the world from Steven Spielberg's beard. Um, okay. There are some crumbs in there. There's uh, appearances by Shia LaBeouf. Harrison so you're like Ford, three feet off the ground? He's not that short. Oh. Uh, this is going to be a great episode. And I say that because this is probably the best two movies that we've done because usually we have a bad one and a good one. Or two bad ones. Or two bad ones. Uh, we are doing a Duel. And catch me if you can. So uh, the theme is running down a dream or mm. uh, duel me if you can. Or uh, being chased by a horrible, disfigured monster. <laughs> Tom Hanks or a big truck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we are joined once again by one of our favorite guests, uh, Rick Pat from uh, Mississippi. Hi, Rick. Hey, guys. Good to, good to talk to you again. Yeah. Oh, I'm Ken and uh, I'm joined by Jack who just yeah, woke I'm, up five I'm, minutes ago. <laughs> Well, yeah, we, he actually took a COVID test. Yeah, I'm feel I'm. This is I'm on my A game. This is uh, who's that guy that was like throwing up everywhere and then he played basketball? Oh, that was Michael Jordan. I think it was Game <laughs> Six against Utah, and they ordered a pizza and they knew it was Jordan. And if you watch the Last Dance uh, when they delivered it, they were all uh, snickering. And then uh, Jordan was fucked up after he ate that pizza in Salt Lake City. But he came back, uh, had an IV during halftime, and closed out the series in the second half. Wait, so someone poisoned his pizza? That's not been proven. But it happened. That's been the rumor. That was the rumor, I remember. Because I remember watching that game. It was was incredible. I do, too. Yeah. Well, this is kind of like a repeat of that, except better. Yeah. So, uh, 1971's Duel, which was uh, uh, the last of his Spielberg's TV movies. I know he did one TV movie before that. And a number of episodes of TV shows. Jack and I talked about his Columbo on a previous episode. Yep. And then 2002's Catch Me If You Can. Uh, both of these are kind of chase movies. so They are. They are two movies that I wanted to rewatch, so I found some pretext to pair them up. Uh, which one are we going to talk about first? We'll Probably talk about Duel, Duel from 1971. Okay. Uh, Richard Matheson adapting his own short story. Uh, Dennis Weaver. I, I should also say that this pairing has two of the greatest things Spielberg has ever done in his career. Uh, one of which is Dennis Weaver's sunglasses in Duel. Oh, yeah. And the other is uh, casting Amy Adams in Catch Me If You Can. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Glad we got that out of the way. Cleared that right. up. Uh, Duel. So, Rick, you'd seen Duel before, right? Yes. Uh, I-, I had seen it and I saw I think I remember, and I'm old enough to have seen it around uh, when it was on television. And I don't know if I saw it actually uh, the year it came out. I was I, I would have been very very young then, uh, but I do remember seeing it on uh, on television, either on a, a repeat or something uh, back in I want to say in the seventies. Okay, um, and I, I still remember it at the time because it it had in there Dennis Weaver, and I had known Dennis Weaver because 
around that time in the 70s, he was uh, McLeod. Yeah, of course. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Which was kind of a ripoff of uh, Coogan's Bluff, the Clint Eastwood oh, movie that we watched, directed yeah. by Don Siegel. That's right. Yeah. Okay, I forgot about that. Yeah, it all comes yeah. together. And at the time, I remember, I, I, was a, I was always a fan, mainly of Columbo, but I liked McLeod. I thought McLeod was, 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 was good, but I was a very big fan of Columbo. And then there was a third uh, series that they had on that would alternate. It was a Macmillan wife. Macmillan wife. Rock Hudson and... Susan St. James. So what they would do would be, I think it would, it used to be on Sunday nights, they would alternate those uh, shows. So one week would be a Columbo, the next week would be McLeod mm. and McMillan and Wife, and then they would rotate back. And I just remember seeing Duel because it had in there the guy I knew as Columbo. And I think at the time I probably had seen him as well when he was... Um, Gunsmoke. You know, he was in the early Gunsmokes. Yeah, yeah he was the limping guy. Oh, okay. Yeah, Chester, I believe. Chester, yeah. And he actually was. Uh, if if uh, if you've never seen that Orson Welles movie, Touch of Evil, he had a he had a very good small part in Ooh. that as well. And that is actually and that's, why that's, a great movie. that's why Spielberg wanted him. And actually, he repeats a line from Touch of Evil, um, which is uh, what what is the line he says? Oh, I'm being chased by a big truck. No, you you think you think, but he says you. Th- Something about thing, but in he pronounces it as think. Do you remember the line? I do not remember that line. Okay, such a beautiful. I can like uh, I can look I, it I don't up. Remember that? But he had a he had a very good role in that movie. I remember it was a great movie. Was, uh, that was an example of somebody taking a, a B movie plot and turning it into a work of art. Really. Yeah, and that that that's really why Spielberg wanted Weaver in this movie, and uh, I think he's great. Um, Jack, this is your first time seeing it. Yeah. Do Do you want to reveal your th- overall thoughts of your impression of this movie? Well, I I think I must be going crazy because the last three Spielberg movies I've watched I've really liked. That might, in fact, that might one. be that might be why I'm, I have like a fever or something right now. Is I just like what's going on? Yeah, I'm confused and delirious. No, it's really good though. It's a really fun, fun, good movie. Um, yeah, I think it's fantastic. So l- let me ask you guys, a, I'm going to give you a quiz. Okay. So uh, when this movie was first released on TV, uh, it, it was, it was a big deal because it's obviously better than most theatrical movies in its, uh, presentation. Um, for foreign release in theaters, they had to add three scenes to beef it up to about 90 minutes. What three scenes do you think they added after it aired on TV? I know one of them was the scene where he calls his wife. Yes. Very I don't. Good. I, didn't yeah, I would have guessed that as well. I would have guessed the wife. All right. Well, what's the other one? Are there two more? Two more. Oh, wow. Okay. No idea. Uh, the other one is the bus uh, The bus scene. What? Yeah. Really? That was a, that was a long scene. and you know, that, that, That's what they needed. They, they needed about 13 minutes to add. Huh. And then uh, there's yeah. one more scene which... I can't believe was not in the original. The snake scene? No. The scene at the railway crossing where it's pushing him towards the train. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And the, so in I the, would not have guessed that. On the bus scene where he's driving up and he stops because he thinks he sees a cop car, but it's really uh, like a pest control car, um, the name of the pest control company is Spielberg spelled backwards. Ooh. Pretty good. That's funny. Little Easter eggs thrown in 
there. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice that at all. I yeah. remember seeing the, the uh, pest control sign, but I did not notice that it, it things go backwards. That's so cool. I think in the last two seasons, uh, with the Michael Mann season, we talked about the Jericho Mile, and uh, this season we're talking about um, Duel. Uh, those are generally considered the top in the top three or four best made-for-TV movies of all time. Um, and, and Duel doesn't even seem like a TV movie. Uh, I, I other than a few s- scenes where you know where Spielberg's reflected in the the phone booth where they didn't have time to redo it. Um, He's but, reflected in the phone booth? Yeah, when Dennis Weaver goes up to the phone booth at the Rattlesnake Farm and he says, I oh, has a weird place for a phone booth. Uh, Steven Spielberg oh, is reflected I didn't, I didn't in the glass of the phone booth. That's kind of funny. It is. It's his Hitchcock. Yeah, it, it was a very, very tight movie. It was very. Uh, it was a very good thriller. And it, it reminded me of um, those... It could have been a Hitchcock movie, I was thinking. Yes, yeah. You know, Hitchcock would take he would take an ordinary person, like um, when you had uh, Cary Grant in Northwest or Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window, just mm-hmm. a normal person, and put them into a very tense situation. And it kind of reminded me of a of almost a almost like a Hitchcock movie. And um, as, as to the way that it was, I mean, it was very very tight. The, the music was great. The uh, the, the tension was excellent, and I, I still remember the thing that stuck out in my mind was the fact that you never saw the driver, and that's what I remember the movie uh, from when I was a kid. I said, yeah, I remember this movie where you would uh, he was being chased, but you who was chasing him. Yeah, that's a really great visual choice that really makes this stand out from other movies, and it's a great conceit for, for a plot. And I was really hoping that they wouldn't ever show his face because what I was expecting to happen was there'd be like an eight eight millimeter <laughs> style scene at the end where like he gets out of the truck and he's like, "Why are you doing this?" And he's like, "I'm just an ordinary guy. I could be anyone on the street." Yeah, you know, he, like the he machine. Was, he was more of a force of nature. Exactly, and I yeah, I really like stories where like it's a very niche style of story, but where like really horrible things happen to people for no reason, like. A Raymond Carver story, almost. So I'm a really big fan of that in general. So the the guy who wrote the the script also wrote the short story. Richard Matheson worked on a a, a ton of Twilight Zones, and this story for Duel appeared in Playboy magazine, and it was inspired by an event that happened on the day John F. Kennedy was killed, and uh, he was driving somewhere, and and uh, he got in a, a tailgating beef with a, a truck driver. Uh, and Spielberg is a big fan of Twilight Zone. Um, huh. What I read is his secretary brought him the story, which at that time Spielberg must have been like younger than you. <laughs> so to have a secretary bringing you a copy of Playboy, it's pretty weird. But hey, I'll go with it. Sure. Um, well, it, it, it did. It did kind of make it to where it was something that everybody could relate to watching the movie. Is because we've all been in traffic and somebody either cut us off or did something and in your head you're going okay wait a minute now do i be aggressive with this person do i back off does this person have a a, i mean is this person going to run into me do they have a gun (laughs) yeah and all of these things that you think uh uh, might happen to you on the road i mean it's likely there's been one or two events in your lifetime where you can relate Mm -hmm. to this totally yeah and the the fact they they keep it um 
I mean, they, they never go too far into making Dennis Weaver into a jerk who deserves it. Uh, because some movies, they might have a tendency where he just does some one stupid thing, but he doesn't. He just passes a guy. It, it's it's not like he does anything malevolent or flips him off or yeah. anything of the like. It's it's completely <laughs> innocuous, and he literally had and we and he literally have no idea why this guy or girl I don't know could be. Well, you see his big hairy arms, so eh, you know. <laughs> okay, I guess. Something I didn't pick up um, when I was rewatching this. I, I guess I never uh, picked it up, and, and it's been it's been. I've probably have not seen this movie since the 80s. And uh, one thing I completely forgot about was there was a line in there when he was in the diner where I think he was talking to himself, and it was almost as if he had a, a, a post-traumatic stress disorder from something in Vietnam because he started talking about being in the jungle and, oh. and, and together to basically, it almost had a, a traumatizing experience in Vietnam, and now he was... I guess getting his life together and not uh, not having that affected him, and this kind of brought it back. And then I, I guess the scene that I thought the scene that he was talking with his wife was good, simply because you could tell that uh, she was just complaining that some guy had hit on her and he didn't do anything. So mm, he yeah. was you know, back to where he was being real meek and trying to avoid any confrontations and stuff like that for his psyche, I guess. And then you see throughout this movie, he started to, uh, I guess, get more steel in his spine. Yeah. Well, well, his last name is Man. He is driving a Plymouth Valiant. Um, and it, what I appreciate about this movie, it's very subtle. Uh, it's like the straw dogs thing where the dude has to kill somebody in order to become a quote unquote man. Um, that kind of uh, subtext is kind of silly, but it's real subtle and it's just kind of hinted at and it's not forced upon us, uh, much like the stuff of uh, a dude coming from the city going to the desert. And, and we even hear it in like some of the, the talk radio and how the people react to him in the diners. Right. It's really subtle. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't push any sort of uh, agenda, but it's definitely there if you want to dig a little deeper. Yeah. And also by the end, when he, he finally defeats the guy for one thing, when you see the truck go over the hill, a cool little detail is that the door, the driver's side door is already open. So it's implied that the guy could have totally escaped and still be out there. And also he loses everything. He won't be home in time. He, he loses his... his briefcase. He loses the client and his car is completely destroyed. <laughs> He's stranded in the middle of nowhere with no phones and nobody trusts him. Oh, uh, you know, we, we've been talking 50 minutes. Should, should we uh, uh, summarize the plot uh, for anybody who's never seen Duel? Jack, do you want to summarize it? There's a guy and he's driving around and then he passes a truck. And for some reason, this makes this truck really angry. And so it chases him and, th and this tries to kill him. <laughs> this looks like a, a demon truck from uh, the, the 19th century. Some sort of weird steam powered uh, semi truck. Yeah. Which has is a tanker truck with the words flammable on it. But spoilers, when it crashes at the end, it does not explode, which is still one of the greatest things about that's this awesome. movie. It's yeah. like such a cock tease. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's the whole movie. It's just like a, a, he doesn't do anything wrong, but he just gets stalked by this otherworldly truck. Yeah. And he's in the desert in the middle of nowhere and in this red car, which just pops out in the, the desert, which right. is why they picked that color. And it's just the first part of it, I thought 
thought they were setting it up to where it, if you watch kind of the first half of the movie, you don't know whether people are just not going to believe him. They're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, this truck's trying to kill you. Sure mm-hmm. thing, sure thing. But then if about midway through, the truck starts doing things that, you know, other people are witnessing. So it's not like he could go to the police and then, the, and then you know, like, for example, the snake lady or somebody like that. They yeah. can say, oh, yeah, this is what this guy did. Right. So, yeah, I read a great uh, summation of it on, I think, Letterboxd. Um, where someone was talking about how the diner scene, which is probably the most iconic scene from the movie, I'd say it seems to be the thing that stands out to everyone. That seems straight from a Twilight Zone, honestly. Yeah, and well, exactly, and the, this person was saying, sorry if I find your username, I'll credit you, but I, I forgot. But um, this person was saying that, that the reason that scene is so great is because at that point in the story, you're not actually sure if anyone else can see the truck. Yes. And I thought that was really great. No, I'll say, are you talking about the Twilight Zone where they're in the diner? I think one person's an alien or something. Is that the one you're talking about? I, I just think as as a short story concept, it, it feels like a Twilight Zone. And um, the adaptation into a movie kind of pushes the boundaries of a short story into a movie. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but th- this 90% of this movie is so tense and uncomfortable. And, and a lot of that credit goes the way Spielberg shoots it. Yeah. It's really grimy and it's really, really sweaty. It's a very sweaty looking movie. Everyone, yeah, it seems like like he's in hell basically. And uh, th- they're just the dust and everything else that's all around, and it's just it, it is it's, it's very well filmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there and there's always movement. Um, I, I think of the scene where he's talking to his wife. And uh, there's somebody in the foreground getting stuff out of the laundry. That is that is Him so is in, well shot. He's in the the midground, and then there's like the outside, possibly the truck in the background. Yeah, and he frames everything like a ghost story, where you're always seeing uh, multiple levels, and there's always a background where you think the truck might appear. Right, you know, like a ghost appearing in a haunted house story. Um, and everything's framed that way. Uh, really amazing work. Uh, for a guy that's about as old as you are now, Jack. <laughs> and, it, and it opened up, and you remember the first scenes, or it, it's almost as if it's just completely uh, through his eyes when he pulls out of, the, of his garage and then gets on the highway and gets out of town. I mean, you're you're having a first person viewpoint there for right. him, and so and and like like Jack said, you don't know whether uh, there are implications at the beginning, at least, where well, is this is this real? Is this something that he's just imagining? But then, yeah, you know, it, it goes in another direction. But that that was well filmed that way. It's kind of in the way it was filmed, as far as the uh, cinematography and the way it was paced. I don't know. Have y'all ever seen that um, that uh, Peter Bogdanovich uh, film Targets with uh, with uh, Boris Karloff? It was filmed around the same time, the late sixties, about the guy kind of it and goes on top of a a, a water tower and starts shooting uh, random motorists and everything. No, so I've not it, seen that. It was filmed wow. a lot like that, as far as the feel of it. Wow! And, um, and that was a very good film too. That sounds um, great. So I, I, one shot in particular early in the story, where I guess in twenty twenty two, we're just kind of used to this kind of shit. But it starts on one side of Dennis Weaver's car from the outside, and then it goes oh, yeah. behind that behind him. That was an amazing shot. And then it shot. pulls in front of his car to the front of the truck. Uh, I this was this movie was shot in like two weeks, um, with almost no budget. Uh, the fact that young young Spielberg, Spielberg um, 
was able to envision that shot and actualize it. Freaking amazing. It would be amazing today. Yeah. With, without CGI. Uh, amazing shot. Yeah. There's uh, quite a few like flashy, big shots like that that'll definitely stick in your memory. My other favorite one is when he thinks at one point, most of the story is him thinking he's finally lost the truck and then oh, he it. But the one where it's really close on his car from far away and then it like his car spins like he's clearly stopped it like slammed on the brakes and then it crash zooms out and we're behind the truck yes that is an amazing shot Uh, there are so many shots of uh us looking at the back of dennis weaver's head we could see where he's going but we could also see the rear view to what's behind him uh i mean conceptually the way this movie is shot if you look at from a story point of view to the way he uh visualizes it Fucking amazing! Yeah, yeah. That was those were great scenes. I, I was reminded of while I was watching this movie. There was a great scene in that Steve McQueen movie Bullet, where they have a car chase through San Francisco, and the guys, the the killers, lose him, and then all of a sudden they see in the rearview mirror, you see, you see uh, McQueen's Mustang pull up. <laughs> and you see it in the rearview mirror with that music, that uh, jazz music. Yeah. So one of one of the the rigs that they used, uh, Peter. Peter Hyams, maybe, for Bullet, that used for the chase scene in Bullet, um, Steven Spielberg used for um, Duel. And that's uh, like the the camera that is on the car while it's driving, very mm. low angle looking up, um, which with the cliffs and everything, and the um, it made it look like it was faster than it actually was without speeding up the film. And I enjoyed it, too, because it, it, there was also a movie around that time called Vanishing Point, I think. That oh, I love Vanishing Point, it, yeah. It was a... It was kind of a it was kind of a chase movie, but the guy was you know he was just kind of running away really and a little bit different. But it, the way it was filmed reminded me of that as well. Right. Uh, so uh, both of you, this is early Spielberg, and obviously this is like a, a resume for him that got him some subsequent gigs, including Jaws. You can see why, right? I was going to bring up Jaws because Jaws is very famous for the way it's filmed being very clever because shark didn't work. So they could really had to uh, choose carefully when to show it. And I think that the way this is shot, I mean, especially he was, he was what, 24, right? Yeah. And this had like no budget and was shot in two weeks and whatever. And yeah, the way it's filmed and the sense of dread that it gives you just by showing you a fucking semi truck is amazing. Yeah, it, yeah, it was very tense. It was very, very good. And it reminded me, it too, I, and this was around the time, I think I mentioned when we had talked before about how it was around the time I think he did that first season Columbo episode that mm-hmm. I know y'all, y'all have already talked about, but um, uh, but you can see the way he was kind of filming it. I mean, of course, that wasn't the action type scenes, but you can see the little scenes of the telephones and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Was, he was honing his craft, really. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, he a lot of influence from Orson Welles with uh, something in the foreground, midground, background. I mean, you don't see a lot of directors do that these days, but I don't know if that's good or bad. But well, it's probably my top five favorite Spielbergs. That... It might, it might, it might be up there for me. Yeah, I don't know where I'd place it. I, I definitely liked it more than Catch Me If You Can, just by a little bit. I think my one problem with it, if I had to criticize something, is that I think the last chase sequence like the final chase it feels like it goes on for a little bit too long for the conclusion that it actually has but it has great moments in it like when the car is stalling and going up the oh hill. yeah 
Oh so, yeah, when the the radiator hose, the Chekhov's radiator hose. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that's what I that's what I thought too. Chekhov's gun is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, I mean, because they mentioned it in the first ten minutes of the movie. Well, what I was thinking was it was going to be Chekhov's uh, flammable sign. Flammable, yeah. That, that, like you said, brilliantly never circles back. There's no big explosions. Uh, So uh, there there are two things, Spielberg, uh, because the the network ABC said, well, we want – it's flammable. We want an explosion. And Spielberg was like, well, he wanted it to be like a, a, a giant prehistoric monster falling off a cliff and dying logistically and realistically if it had been full of anything uh the truck would have not have been able to make those moves so yeah. realistically there's no way that tanker could have been full to do that so uh good for spielberg sticking to his guns yeah and that actually brings up probably my favorite shot in the movie is when the truck is falling and it's this really 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 long take in slow motion of it just tumbling in the dust and then falling, like going all the way down the cliff. And when it's finally at the bottom, like all crumpled up, like, yeah, it looks like a prehistoric monster. The camera stops on the ground and the dust like rolls over it. And it's just an amazingly well-coordinated shot for something that I assume they only had one chance to be able to they, film. They had six cameras. One of them, the truck fell on. Um, yeah, <laughs> that they had one, sense. one shot, one shot. And I like the, I like the fact that the, it seemed like the truck was empty at the end because that made me think of, well, here's a guy that, I mean, he didn't even really have a job other than going out terrorizing uh, <laughs> motorists or something. I mean, that's he, a good point. He, he's got a real old truck and he just says, well, I'm going to stick out this real old truck. I don't have any gas in here or anything, but I'm just going to terrorize motorists. Wow. The hell of it. <laughs> that's a really good point. I'm, I'm a huge fan of this movie. Uh, the font. For the credit sequence, uh, maybe the best font of any Spielberg credit sequence. Oh, yeah. The, the opening credits of this, no offense, catch me if you can, but much better than These might be one. two of the best credit sequences of any Spielberg uh, that we've watched. Well, we'll get to it. Oh, you don't like catch me if you can? I love catch me if you can. The, I love I love the ending shot as well. The, the classic Spielberg sunset. It's silent as the credits roll, which I thought was a good decision. Uh, so you, so you, you, you watching it for the first time, um, the phone booth and rattlesnake sequence. Yes. You saw it for the first time. Yes. That's like one of the, the iconic moments, the, the semi crashing into the phone booth. Yes. Dennis Weaver. I mean, they planned it. They had, uh, they had people off to the side with flags in order to wave the truck driver on because that was, there was no trickery. It was like Dennis Weaver had to get out of the way. Yeah. Um, and I like that actress that was in there too, but I can't remember her name. I don't. I don't know her name, but she was. She played. She played similar roles in all of her uh, in all of her film credits. I think she was. A, she was in Silver Streak. I think with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor playing a playing a similar role. So was she, was she in that? Was she in 1941? I know one of the uh, one of the people in this movie was also in 1941. Um, because Spielberg does that kind of shit, but I'm not going to watch 1941 for this season. So <laughs> I will never know. But then the the truck keeps going around and around. Uh, is such a great sequence and so terrifying because it's so big. But it, it the way it's shot and framed, it's almost like they're helpless to do anything about it. Yeah. But realistically, if a big truck like that was doing that, I mean, it wouldn't be very difficult to step out of the way. Right. Uh, but the sound effects and the framing of it uh, make it terrifying. Like it's really you scary. can't escape it. 
Yeah. Um, and I think people, I think people that are that probably have never heard of this film or, or just vaguely heard of it before, even younger people, uh, maybe Jack's age or something like that, if they'll be really surprised at how well they like it and how how uh, how much it tugs your emotions and suspense. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of those movies that you almost are. You know, you have these certain movies or thrillers. You're saying, "Hey, how much more does this have?" I kind of like this to be over, <laughs> right? You know, because it's, it's 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 keeping you on edge and so uncomfortable for so long. So, but and that's not taking away from the enjoyment. I'm just saying that you're you're thinking about, oh, this is this is a this is a lot of uh, of uh, of tension. To speak to your point about young people, I don't know anything about young people. First of all. Given the way movies are made now, a thriller like this would need so much more supporting material in the first act. It would be two hours long, and uh, you would have to have an inciting incident that almost justified the truck driver yeah, going after him. Right. And the, the abstractness and randomness of how this movie's actually made, I really do think would appeal to modern filmmakers, because those are the kind of fears that people have. And when you over-explain... Uh, motivations of both the protagonist and antagonist, it kind of takes away a lot of the tension that this movie has. Uh, to compare it to is Fargo, the TV show, because that every season of that is always about completely ordinary people and vaguely supernatural elements and then like uh, acts of, yeah, completely seemingly random violence and terror happening to them. That's not a bad comp. Yeah, and plus, uh, plus, as you're, as you're, thinking about things that happen in, in real life it, in movies especially people will always try to ascribe oh well, there has to be a motive oh i killed somebody there has to be a motive well sometimes there's not yeah sometimes things just people just do things without any real thought out plan or anything else it's just that you know that guy said oh well, this 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 car got in front of me so now i'm gonna terrorize and, there, <laughs> and there, there's no- there's nothing about Dennis Weaver's character where it's set up in the early part of like what his job is that can explain some kind of home alone home alone sequence at the end where he tricks the truck into going over the cliff. He's just like so desperate and doesn't know what to do. He like drives it towards a cliff and jumps out of his car. That that's his plan. Nearly dies. And nearly yeah. dies. <laughs> uh but yeah, in a modern movie there would definitely need to be context and he would have like uh drones in the trunk of his car cuz he's a drone salesman or something. <laughs> like I don't know, some bullshit. Well, like I said there would definitely be an 8 millimeter scene where you'd have to get some sort of explanation. Yeah. Or confrontation. And the best thing about it just like Jaws is there real is no real explanation it's just a force of nature that is going after somebody who's like you or me yeah a great conceit definitely all Do you right have, you have google reviews for yeah that? i have some google reviews or actually i think i have i think i have one i have one but it's long and it's really funny okay uh first i'm gonna read off of letterboxd though just really quick okay. ken coral gives it three and a half stars and well, says that's me damn those are cool sunglasses you're correct thank you uh, you know what? A fu- uh, fun fact. I, I looked on my, um, where I order my, my glasses from, and I was looking for frames that were like Dennis Weaver's in that movie because I thought that would be totally cool to have them. That'd be awesome. They don't make them, but. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. On to Google. Your mom gives it one star. She's dead. I have respectful. I have respectfully sat back, taken a seat, and kept my mouth shut about the atrocity of this film for far too long. <laughs> The truth is, while I restrained from unleashing the hearth truth, harsh truth exposing this terrible rendition of Disney Pixar's cars, 
I wish that I was the truck in the film that ultimately drove off a cliff and exploded into flames. Didn't happen. Uh, put simply, I think that tooth extraction during the Renaissance may have been less painful than sitting through this movie. If you want to see two middle-aged men go vroom vroom cargo fast grr be mad at each other, then this movie might be for you, since this consumes the 96 minutes of it in its entirety. I personally feel that this film is a complete copyright violation of the Hot Wheels Enterprise, and that the plot has no originality. Please note that I, I have to leave a star for this film to be reviewed, but I would absolutely love to give it zero stars. This film deserves to be awarded nothing. As Abby Lee Miller from the Abby Lee Dance Company once said, <laughs> you deserve nothing. Do not watch this movie, dog. This is the real me. Stay safe out there, though, y'all. Swag money for life. Sincerely, your mom. Wow. That might be one of the best Google reviews you've ever read. That's up there with the cat one about Mystic River. Yes. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, that person sounds like they have a vendetta against Duel like I have a vendetta against Lincoln. Uh, yeah, we're going to see that through in here in a couple of weeks, aren't we? Uh, allegedly. Uh, are we ready to move on to 2002? Yeah. 40, 41 years later? Wait, 31 years later? How many years later is that? 31? 31. 31 years later. Catch me if you can. This is your first time watching it, Jack. Rick, are you a fan of Catch Me If You Can? I, I did not see it at the theater, but I did catch it, uh, I think, when it came either on video or, or, or cable after that. So I enjoyed it. I remember enjoying it. Did you, uh, did you rent it on VHS, I, like at a Blockbuster? Probably. Yeah. I, I would say probably either that or HBO or something. Uh, I remember it, it coming on uh, at the time. I remember that was man, 20 years ago, so yeah, that was... Uh, I guess wow. they were still doing, I can't remember what the time period was with Netflix by mail and Blockbuster overlapped. And <laughs> I can't really remember the years that that, that occurred. So um, there's some format like that. Yeah. Let, let's put this in the, the context of Spielberg's career. He did Saving Private Ryan, which was a big deal. He won an Oscar for it. Um, and then he made AI. Boo. So AI came out. Uh, Rick, I know that's your all-time favorite movie. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then, uh, in the summer of 2002, he had uh, Minority Report, which we've already covered, and is one of the ugliest looking <laughs> movies I've ever seen. Um, and then, right after Catch Me If You Can, he made um, War of the Worlds. Yeah, War of the Worlds in Munich. That was that double okay double bill that year. War of the Horse. Uh, so some interesting choices and catch me if you can is smacked out in the middle of some not very good movies. So this came out the same year as minority report. Yes. Okay. Riddle me this. Were these two movies shot by the same cinematographer? Yes. Okay. Jack's head just exploded because minority report is quite possibly the ugliest looking movie I've ever had to sit through <laughs> It is literal torture on your eyeballs. And catch me if you can, if I hadn't known, if I didn't know what this was, and I didn't know that Spielberg or Kaminsky were attached, and you had asked me who had shot it, I would have said Robert Richardson, because that's how good it looks. Okay. Yeah, it, it, looked, very, it looked very good. I mean, it, it still, it had that, it had that kind of, uh, I guess, madman feel to it, that it, it was that era, and uh, that, well, that, that era that Scorsese used in Goodfellas back mm -hmm. in the 60s. And, uh, you know, it had that feel to it to me. So, uh, so a, a little background on Catch Me If You Can. Uh, it's based on the biography of Frank, Frank Ab Abagnale Jr. 
Um, a lot of his biography is questionable, which uh, makes him an unreliable narrator, which makes some of the changes from his book to the movie uh, more palatable, I think. Okay. Um, the book and the rights bounced around a lot after its publication in the early 80s. Wait, wait. So you're saying that him writing this book was another con? I'm saying there are some <laughs> things in the book that after the book came out, even in the early 80s after it came out, were kind of debunked. So portions of the book uh, okay. almost seem like an extension of the cons that he may or may not have done when he was a teenager, Interesting. which I think makes it even better. That's great. Yeah. Um, it, it bounced around the rights to it in, uh, in the, the, the late 90s. Spielberg was going to produce it. Uh, Gore Verbinski and David Fincher were attached at various times. Ooh, Finch- like as a directing pair? No. That's the, that's the movie I want to see. Uh, so Fincher moved on to um, Panic. Panic Room, which I don't know. Was, eventually, that, the Jody, was that the Jodie Foster movie? Yeah, yeah written Room. written by uh, the podcast favorite screenwriter ever, David Kep. Woo! He's a really bad influence on us. Yep, that's nice a movie one. that he wrote. Yeah, one of his best. Yeah, uh, Jeff Nathanson, who wrote the script, uh, has. His filmography outside of this is is not really the best, but it's a collaborative medium, so I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because most of what's in Catch Me If You Can is his script. And uh, when he got the book, he interviewed Abagnale uh, numerous times, talked to the FBI, uh, made a lot of changes from the book, uh, like uh, condensing various FBI people into one character, focusing on the family. And then when Spielberg came on as director, Spielberg changed what do you think Spielberg changed? What do you think Spielberg's influence on the script? Because Nathanson's script is what Spielberg shot. So it wasn't like where he had um, somebody else wrote a script like Eric Roth, and then he had uh, Ashton Kutcher or Tony Kushner, whatever his name is, come in and, and, and rewrite it. This was pretty much Nathanson, which Spielberg doesn't do a lot, just like work with one screenwriter. He likes to have multiple dudes work on it. What do you think Spielberg's influence was on this movie? Plot wise, did he? Um, maybe the father, the Christopher Walken character. Maybe? Rick, you get a gold star. No shit, hundred percent. Huh? So uh, in, that's what I was gonna say too. In in the book, um, which is supposedly based on his real life, once he runs away, he never sees his dad again. Oh, but Spielberg oh. had to. Well, he, I, I think, to the credit of the movie, actually, because usually I think Spielbergisms ruin things, but Christopher Walken <laughs> is so fucking good. Um, and that narrative of him going back and him still being a kid despite doing all this stuff, on paper, I would say is terrible. Uh, but Walken, DiCaprio, and the the world that Spielberg creates in this movie, I, I think it works perfectly. I would agree with that. Walken is great in yeah, this. Yeah, I would, I would too. Yeah, he was he was very very good. And I could see I could see the way that they had the you know the Tom Hanks and the, I guess almost it. He's reaching out to him. DiCaprio is reaching out to him, and uh, because I guess he can't have a normal relationship with his father in there, and but he wants one or something. So mm-hmm. I, I always I thought that seemed to be a little tacked on. So I, I'm not surprised that, that that actually is the case that was added in. Uh, so one of the yeah. uh, the missed opportunities of this movie, and rewatching it, um, I I don't hate Tom Hanks like Jack does. I like Tom Hanks in this movie, but. Because uh, production on some other movies was pushed back, the original person to play that character, who do you think it was? Okay. 
Let me guess. Who would be perfect? He's would be perfect? he's no longer with us, so he's dead. Rick, what do you, who do you think would would be an improvement uh, of Tom Hanks, who is now dead? Oh goodness, uh, who is now dead? Uh, That's just a, a a clue or a hint. Can I get one more hint? Um, um, <laughs> um, bada bing. Oh, uh, James Gandolfini. There you go, Rick. What? Rick, Rick, Rick wow. has gotten Rick is uh, <laughs> up uh, two. Um, Trivia questions to Jack. Yeah, Rick. If we ever do a trivia night for anything, yeah, you're you you're on our out. team. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know how much credit I can take or how much how proud I should be that that the name of a strip club puts puts an actor's name in my head. Okay. Well, James Gandolfini would have been awesome. Uh, can you imagine James Gandolfini in uh, that 1960s hat and those glasses in a FBI suit and uh, Gandolfini and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio? Would have been fantastic pairing. That I th- I I would have much preferred that because, as you may have suspected from podcast lore, one of my least favorite parts of the movie was Tom Hanks, and I don't think he's that bad in it. Like he's not as grating as he is in other movies. Like I wasn't like clawing at my skin and like stabbing myself in the eyes with a fork, but he's not my favorite. Uh, still, I think the. Uh... The reason he's not grading is the same way Spielberg isn't because um, they all seem to be on the same page as to what they want this movie to be. And that is something funny, uh, kind of quick and, uh, you know, kind of kind of heartwarming at the same time. But it never gets yeah. to the point where – and I, I was thinking about this today and I think the the key to this movie is they were all in on making – someone who's an essentially a criminal, a likable character that you want to see succeed. It kind of reminded me of that. uh, And I know, I think this movie was made after that, but it reminded me of that uh, movie with Johnny Depp blow where the way they kind of filmed it, where, you know, here you have a criminal, but you, they made him into a real likable character Mm -hmm. the whole way through that you kind of, you kind of felt bad for him as to what happened in the movie. But, um, I, I thought that breezy way that they were kind of um, making the character was, was was similar to that. Absolutely, and this is speaking of breezy and quick. This is one of the the quickest two two and a half hour almost movies that I could think of. It does not fe- and I feel. Think a lot of that has, I think a lot of that has to do with. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is he just a movie star? I mean, he's a classical you know movie star in the, in the sense that. Your eyes are on him the entire time, and he commands the screen, you know. And so he just he just has that movie star quality to it. Yep, definitely. Yeah, this is a a great performance from a, a talented young actor. Uh, so uh, we we talked you, you talked about Janice Kaminsky not looking like he shot this. I, I would disagree that the scene where he's in the schoolroom where he comes in as a student and then pretends to be the substitute teacher hilarious. Really funny. And uh, we, we, we've talked a lot about Spielberg's lack of ability at comedy, but this might be his best movie at both being funny and kind of tugging at the heartstrings, but yeah. none of it being so overplayed that you just want to throw something at the table. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think you knew that I was expecting to hate this. And the opening like five minutes or so, I was like, oh God, this is going to... I didn't really like the opening credits or anything, but... Very quickly, I was I was pretty much cracking up this whole movie. There are some moments where I was like full on laughing because it is really funny and really clever. 
as well. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good word. It's it's really very clever in the way they showed, and you tell the filmmaker showing about how to how he was actually uh, uh, forging the checks and the little plans that he would do. And the opening credits reminded me of a Pink Panther movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <So>. completely <laughs> right. We didn't talk about John Williams. His main theme for this, which is replayed numerous times during the movie, I think is great and one of my favorite. His other ancillary moments are pretty profound. There's some, there's some dooting with the music and the, some scatting, and then yeah, they're, they're, some of some of the some of the scenes are are a bit much. Just like tone it down, buddy. But I will say, for a collaboration of four of my least favorites: Kaminsky, Spielberg, Williams, Hanks. This is such a watchable and really good movie. It it blows my mind how all four of those elements at pretty much their worst era, in my opinion, came together and made it, this. It, it, is, it doesn't make any sense. It is kind of weird. <laughs> uh, I was reading um, uh, an article at the time by the screenwriter, uh, an interview with the screenwriter, Jeff Nathanson, and uh, he they were talking to him about how much of his script, because he worked on the script and then uh, Spielberg came in and they changed a lot of stuff, but it, it was all his script. And uh, at one point on set... There was a, a sequence, like an extra con that he had written into it that was taken from the book that he really wanted. And he he found himself arguing with Spielberg and Spielberg uh, turned to him and said, uh, listen, I've, I've shot like over 90% of your script as it was written. Leave me alone. Ooh. And he did. Brutal. But that's, Brutal takedown. But it's pretty good too because he, he realized, <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm pretty lucky. I had Steven Spielberg shoot almost the entirety of my script. Right. I mean, how many people can say that? I definitely can. And 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 you, you were talking about it being so watchable. I mean, it, I looked at the runtime afterwards and I said, wow, that was, uh, I think, a two-hour, 20-minute movie. And it just didn't seem that at all. It seemed, if you had to tell me how, how long did that last, I'd say, I, I don't know, hour and 45, hour and 50 minutes. Yeah. And uh, the, the evocation of uh, the, the 60s, um, it reminded me of, what he did in Munich to where there are no real flashy wide shots or, or cherry picker shots where it rises up. Yeah. Um, there were, there were a lot of shots that were just like uh, medium shots, but you can see the background and there are lots of other cars. None of it ever dwelled on it to make you realize you're watching a recreation. There was never any uh, uh, CGI cars in the foreground, like in West Side Story. But even Eastwood has that problem, like you're saying, and every one of his historical movies, except for Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, uh, our favorite. There's always a shot where, even in the really good ones, there's always a shot where the camera has to go up, and you say, okay, there's a CGI oh, yeah, city. Yeah, yeah. And... They, 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 re they redid this entire block, and then they did a bunch of CGI to make it look right. like there's no Twin Towers in the background. <laughs> but yeah, this one, it feels like, yeah, I think, Rick, you're Men comparison is pretty spot on because Mad Men is also very cleverly filmed in the way that it shows the 60s that never really felt like nostalgia bait or anything. Yeah, it just seemed like a story that took place then and it wasn't trying to trigger any nostalgia. For sure. Um, what was your guys' favorite con that you pulled off? Uh, I would have to say it surprises me every time, but it's the Jennifer Garner scene. Uh, shout out. <laughs> yeah, she ends up paying him four hundred dollars to make up the difference for a, a check that's going to bounce. Oh yeah, um, cracks me up every time. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Uh, I don't want to denigrate sex workers because, but but still, that's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. She shot that in one day, by the way. Oh, Spielberg saw her an alias and was like, "Hey, 
do you want to play a, a former model turned prostitute? She was like, sure. And, and I remember seeing it. The, the, they had set up the joke throughout the whole movie, but it was kind of obvious at the end when he was saying about the law school, um, you know, oh, how did you cheat on the exam? And I, you can kind of guess what the line's going to be. Ooh. Didn't she? Yeah. So I thought that was a, it was a, it was a, it paid off the way you thought it was, but still that was satisfying. But what, and, definitely. Uh, what I liked about that is because after everything we've seen, including Hanks promising on his daughter's uh, life that, you know, there are people out there and then he thinks he's, he was lying and says, good job. And then it turns out he was right. When DiCaprio or Abagnale says that to Hanks that he studied, you're not really sure if he's telling the truth. That's a good point. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you don't really believe him, but it makes for a good story. So who cares? Yeah, and I think the hardest the hardest one might have been, and, and you can you 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 know the the true story of it, and, and I don't. Did he really play get hired as a doctor in, in at the hospital? Is that actually the truth? He got, well, there and you just BSing to get be a lawyer. There's a just acting like you're a pilot when you never really have to fly a plane. But if he got actually hired as a doctor at a hospital. Right. That that stuff's uh, a little a little hazy about how much he actually got from forging checks, how much he actually was able to impersonate all those different career fields. But in the end, uh, we're not watching this movie as a, a true life story that has to have um, fidelity to the real world. So he said after he watched the movie that like the cons, the actual cons and how he did them were all accurate. They changed a bunch of his family. He actually had a couple of brothers and a sister, never saw his family after he ran away. His mom didn't remarry, all that kind of stuff. Mm. But he, he, he was, he was very happy with how they presented his, his cons. Okay. And those kind of, those kind of movies are very interesting subject matter, you know, all the way back from the sting and, mm-hmm. uh, what was it? Paper moon and the sting back in the seventies. And then, uh, that David Mamet film, House of Games, was very good. Oh, I love about, that. Uh, yeah. Con artist. Yeah, and the, and there's uh, something about DiCaprio uh, looking so young, and and you can't help but root for him and and in, enjoy vicariously how he is using the system to his advantage. I think it's the great strength of this movie. As like I said before, it's like it's like this guy's like if if he was on. KT News Twitter feed about some guy posting bad checks, you know, people would be like all up in arms. But presenting someone, what he is doing, it, it's really charming. And the the stuff with his family, um, it makes it kind of sad. Yeah. It, it's funny and charming and quick-witted and, and also kind of sad at the same time. I was really afraid at the end with the Tom Hanks friendship stuff that there that Spielberg was going to go full Spielberg, you know, never go full Spielberg, Tropic Thunder. Yep. But he didn't luckily, and I think that the ending is maybe a little confused, like I don't really get the point yeah. towards the end, yeah. it's a little but it, the rest of the movie's really good, so the the last 10 minutes are like kind of how do we wrap this up? It's yeah, it's kind of like so he gets oh, it's cool that he gets a job at the FBI, but then it's depressing cuz he has a desk, but then it's happy again but then he runs away but then he comes back so it's a good thing and then he made a bunch of money off of writing a book about it so it was a good thing in the end that he went through all that who knows yeah I'm- and, and I think the, the end it almost seemed like that the thing where he was 
running away or and that was just I, I don't know whether that really happened or whether that was in the book or not but that seemed to be kind of tacked on I mean the end yeah, of the it was. film was yeah. probably oh well he just got hired with the FBI to help him with checks and that was the end of the uh, actually what the end of the film should have been I don't know what the original script was like but it should have been the end of the episode of uh, the game show that started the movie to where he, it, the person doesn't guess that he is the one that is actually Frank Abagnale because that was a, that's a real episode of that TV show. Oh yeah, because um, one of the guys was the real life Frank Abagnale in that lineup. Yeah, that would have been a good way to end it is to have it. To, to, yeah, him. To have the have the guest panelists uh, guess wrong on that, and I, I remember that show. It used to come on. I think. I mean, I was just a very small kid, but I remember seeing it. They would have all these celebrities on, and they would try to guess which one of the three was telling the truth. So. So uh, as far as Spielberg goes, uh, I know we were kind of forcing Jack to do this because he hates Spielberg so much. <laughs> but uh, Catch Me If You Can, uh, since I saw it, I always felt – you could tell just by watching it. And we've watched a lot of Spielbergs the last couple months that when he is invested in a movie, um, you can really feel it. And this is one of the movies um, that stands apart from almost his entire filmography because yeah. it feels really personal – if you think about his beginnings as a teenager, uh, sneaking onto Hollywood sets, uh, getting into Hollywood by, uh, you know, hook or crook, um, this always felt like the most personal of Spielberg's movies. And for him to tell it through a con artist played by Leonardo DiCaprio, I always felt, I always felt that th this was the most personal movie Spielberg's ever made. He is making The Fablemans, which comes out this winter, written by, um, Ashton Kutcher. No, Tony Kushner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is an, an actual coming-of-age movie, which is directly based on his life. But I don't think he needs to make it, does he? I don't think he needs to make you any mean, movies, personally. You mean the movie's about when he was just trying to break into Hollywood? As a yeah, well, filmmaker? because I, I feel uh, thematically with, uh, especially with the father figure played by Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken, I don't know if we've talked enough about him. Um, you know, he, he really pushes this role over the side of the boat <laughs> and let, and lets it swim. Um, yes. th this is probably one of the best, uh, scaled back Walken performances and he is so likable and you could see how DiCaprio's character would want to please him and emulate him. And if it had been casted differently, it, it could have been horrible. Yeah. There was one scene, I think, when he was meeting his dad in the diner or something. They were sitting at a booth, and, and Leonardo DiCaprio came up and gave him a hug, and it, it exposed this wristwatch that DiCaprio had on it. <laughs> and maybe it's just in my head, it, it reminded me. It almost looked like the wristwatch that <laughs> Christian was holding in Pulp <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Uh, uh, so Nathanson, uh, the screenwriter, thinks that the villain of the movie is last trivia question. Oh, the shit. screenwriter of this thinks the villain of the story is Rick. Who do you think? Um, I would say the mother. Jack, what do you think? Ooh, I would say um, the real villain was friendship all along. <laughs> No, Rick, you are three out of three. You are the winner of this no episode. No shit, no way. Jack has kicked off the podcast forever. Wow. That's great. Uh, but in real life, uh, a lot of that stuff it, never it happened. Was, it wasn't too, it wasn't too uh, uh, sparing, I think, of his mother, because I think he, he blamed her for driving his father away and everything. So, 
Uh, DiCaprio and Walken, I mean, they have such great chemistry. Um, DiCaprio and Amy Adams have such, actually, DiCaprio and Hanks have such great chemistry. DiCaprio is just a great fucking actor. Oh, yeah. Having him play this role at this point in his career is is about as perfect a lineup of, uh, uh, project and actor it's just like uh, uh I, like like like, like they, they were they were talking about johnny depp playing that character at the same around the same time imagine johnny depp as opposed to leonardo dicaprio i don't yeah i don't think depp would uh have enough have enough charm and charisma well it, it's charm charisma guile acting and, abilities <laughs> and and there, there's a little bit of vulnerability in dicaprio and anger where uh, he he does like uh, when he's on screen mixes all that together, and at this age that he made the movie, I mean it's really perfect casting. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. He he was a perfect lead for this for this particular film. Tom Hanks, I mean, I mean Tom Hanks is. I think Tom Hanks is great in this Tom movie. Tom Hanks is yeah, it's 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 great. I think his role was limited though, in the sense that he more or less uh, hung back, and DiCaprio was the one that was. Uh, Really, he was the one who had to carry the fact that you could believe that he would just get away with this with his charm and his, his quick-wittedness and everything else. Mm. Well, uh, after Gandolfini uh, had to go work on The Sopranos, um, Spielberg was hesitant to even ask Hanks to do it because it was a supporting role. At that time, Hanks was one of like, the biggest stars in the world. Sorry, Jack. It happened. It's okay. Uh, but Hanks, say, Hanks picked it, saying a, a great role is a great role. Why wouldn't I take it? And he's kind of right. It's a great role. And I remember. Uh, I remember hearing um, some uh, people. I was talking one time to the um, film critic uh, Joe Bob Briggs. You know, if you all are, I was talking to him. One time oh, he yeah. came down to give a speech in Mississippi. Oh yeah. And he was talking about how these, you know, how these uh, actors. And he was working on Casino when he was working on Casino with De Niro and Pesci. He said when L. Q. Jones came in to uh, to actually. Film his scene, they were all excited because they loved character actors. Yeah. They absolutely loved the character actors in Hollywood. So, you know, I, I, some big actors, you know, when they do see a, a supporting role, I think they, they feel like they will pick up the mantle of those, you know, those great character actors you remember from, from movies that you've seen, the, you know, Strother Martins and the, uh, Emmett Walsh's and, uh, Harry Dean Stanton and those guys. Yeah, they, they actually love those guys and working with them. So. Yeah, and then I mean, you sometimes see uh, big stars who segue into being character actors, like your your Russell Crowe's, your Alec Baldwin's. Um, <laughs> what are you laughing? <laughs> what? Uh, no reason. <laughs> uh, your Robert De Niro's. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of. I mean that that's a great way to go when you are no longer having to be the person uh, who is the main draw for the box office and eyeballs for a movie, and you just become MMA Walsh. Thought, I mean, who would want to be MMA, MMA Walsh? Walsh? Yeah, and I've always thought Guy Pierce is a good example of that. Oh he yeah, started out in Memento and places, but he's he he'll take any kind of role, and he does very very well yeah. with character roles as well. Love oh, Mike, Michael Caine's probably another. Perfect example of somebody who was a leading man. Who the older he got, he started oh, taking yeah. supporting roles, and he was arguably more successful. You know, that's interesting that you you mention that because I feel like a lot of younger stars now um, going that route of starring in the the big movies, but then also taking those smaller side roles, like 
Robert Pattinson and Timothy Chalamet both do that, where they're in the biggest movies that come out this year, but then they'll do a little indie movie where they're in it for like 15 minutes. Yeah. Or even, Chalamet even did a, a bit role in uh, Don't Look Up, which, you know, he got to appear with Jennifer Lawrence in there, DiCaprio, so I forgive him for being a shitty movie, but... <laughs> um, no, you, you're right. It is great when you see these great actors take these smaller roles and they show up in very good movies. I think of Philip Seymour Hoffman in Almost Famous, for example, or, or some or movies like that. Where, Brad Pitt in True Romance. Yeah, that was, <laughs> Floyd, and Floyd on the couch. Yeah, <laughs> he's great in that. With James Gandolfini in the scene. <laughs> That's right. Ooh, James Gandolfini. I, I still haven't seen True Romance. It's on my list, though. Eh. <laughs> it's all right. We'll do it for our Scott Free podcast. Oh, where we, we talk about the Scott sure. brothers. Sounds fun. <laughs> uh, are uh, we ready for some reviews? No, I, I want to ask okay. Rick where he thinks "Catch Me If You Can" sits in the filmography of Spielberg. Oh, I think it's in the it's in the top. Um, you know, it, it, I, I would say it's definitely in the top half, maybe the top twenty five to thirty percent. I would say. Okay. When, when's the last time you saw it before you rewatched it for this podcast? Uh, it, it was probably within a year or so after it came out. Um, oh, okay. So it's been, that was 2002. So I probably saw it around 2003 or so. And I had not seen it since then. So, and it was, uh, I mean, very enjoyable rewatch. Yeah. Were, were you were you surprised by it? Did you have any memories that were like, were you dreading it a little bit? Or, <laughs> or do you, was it as good as you remember or better than you remember? Actually, it was better than I remember. Okay. Because, you, know, you know, a lot of times when you're watching something and you're not in a theater, if you're yeah. at home, you might be watching a movie and you get distracted by something, maybe turn it off, uh, pick it back up later, or you're, uh, who knows what could be going on when you're watching it, and you're not just fully uh, invested in it the way you are if you're sitting in a theater or you're just sitting there watching it completely straight through. So, okay. So it just it just was, was better than this time. Okay, I, I put it in the top tier of, of Spielberg personally with um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, Schindler's List. Wow. Catch Me If You Can. I would I would put it right up there with my favorites wow. that, you know, within the next 20 years, I'll, I'll watch it again, uh, whereas most of his other work, maybe not. That's fair. Well, because uh, when I rewatched it, I rewatched it with my wife, and she thoroughly enjoyed it. I think she had seen it. She had seen it probably the same time I did before, and she had forgotten. She had forgotten, you know, what had happened, and she she really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a good portion of it that takes place in the South, New Orleans, Atlanta. What, what are your thoughts on uh, DiCaprio and Amy Adams's accents? Their Southern accents. <laughs> What's your professional opinion, oh, Rick? I, I thought they, they were they were fine. Okay. I mean, it, you have so many different people talk so many different ways <laughs> down here. I mean, you could have you have the real slow draw, and then it, it just it varies all over the South. So the that's good to hear. Some, some people you would think, some people you would think actually you, you wouldn't tell they were from the South, and then other people you would just say, "Oh my God, this this person is the, that's the most Southern accent I've ever seen." <laughs> Can you? So you, you're from the South, and uh, Andy, Andy, who you met in Mississippi, and she's my wife now, etc. But um, really. You can tell where someone's from by their accent. You can kind of pinpoint where someone's from by the varying degrees of southernness of their accent. Yeah. Like, I can't do that. If I hear someone with a southern accent, it's just like, I've got a southern accent. But Andy, Andy's, no. like, very picky where she says, like, oh, well, that's like a 
Tennessee accent or a, a West Texas accent. I don't know what the fuck she's talking about. Is that a real thing? No. Oh, it definitely is. And you can tell, you can tell I have, I have friends of mine that are from, you know, the hills of East Tennessee and some are from the Memphis area and, uh, some are from, uh, you know, Alabama or Florida or in Texas. And then, of course, Louisiana is its own kind of accent, you know, that, that you can really tell the varying degrees of, uh, of, of Cajun accents oh, yeah. that, that go in. So it's it, it it does vary from different locations, even in the same state. You can you can tell. Yeah, we we on the West Coast uh, we don't have very much degrees of accent until you get further south and they start talking like surfers. Yeah, <laughs> radical dude, right on, man, Grody to the max. No, that's right. Valley Girl. Oh, so do we have Google reviews for? We have a couple letterboxed. Nine volt on Letterbox gives it three and a half and says he catches him. <laughs> Elena with a cloud emoji gives it three stars and says, "I'm 17. I'm afraid to ask for ketchup. How does he manage to run away from the law at 17?" That's mm. fair. Yeah, you mean to get busy, Elena. And Jeannie gives it three and a half and says, "How I feel when I forge my mom's signature and my school planner." Uh, that's like the scene where he has been called into the principal's office. After he's been impersonating the substitute teacher oh, and the yeah. girl's coming in with a note and he says, you got to crease it. You got to fold it. Right. And then he explains, uh, uh, it's such great writing yeah. to establish how he noticed these little things that other people might not. It's, it's such a movie thing, but it, within the context of the movie, it totally works. It's great. Such a funny scene. Yeah, it was a very good scene. It was a good scene. It shows, it shows very early on how smart he is and you could... So it sets up the fact that you would think you could get away with this by yeah. saying, well, that's, that's really smart. Yeah, and it, it doesn't do it in uh, terrible ways where it like it cuts to his eyes looking back and forth, and then it cuts to what he's looking at. Like in slow motion. Yeah, and then and then he speaks it. 95% of the movie uh, respects the intelligence of the viewer. Uh, we get the things where they keep... At the starting of the movie, they keep telling us what timeline we're on, just in case we couldn't figure out the long hair and the short hair. Um, but I'm okay with that. Oh, yeah. So it's like, whatever, man. I mean, you know. <laughs> Great movie. Uh, yeah. One of my favorites. Uh, I think I'm, I uh, I have my Spielberg ranked here. I, uh, I think I put it at number, let's see, number seven, right behind Duel at number six. Okay, so. wait, wait, what's number one through five? Number one, okay. We A got... spoiler for the end of the season, here's Jack's number one through five Spielberg. Well, Letterboxd keeps removing the Columbo episode. So they keep removing it, and then someone will put it back on, and they keep removing So number number one? Yeah, number one would be Columbo, Schindler's List, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, Tintin, and Last Crusade. That's a good list. That's a good list. I'm surprised. I'm very surprised you put the Columbo one, but that's one that I've always really, really enjoyed. Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah, we 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 did an episode on that in uh, Minority Report last month, and it was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then the perfect Columbo villain, Jack the Jack Cassidy, who was probably uh, along with just a couple more, maybe Robert Culp or somebody. He was the perfect Columbo villain. Oh yeah, and his name was Ken. That's right. So what better Columbo villain than? Oh, he should have got away with it though. Really, if you think about it, because if his name was Ken. He, was he almost did, but then Columbo caught him. Man, that short little guy with the one eye. Spoilers. Is that it? We're done? I think so. Uh, this was the best Spielberg 
episode we have done for this podcast because I love both of the ones that we watched and they're fun to talk about with you, Rick. Yep. Yeah, thank you for thank you for picking these two. So <laughs> yeah. I wasn't saddled. I wasn't saddled with uh, with one that I just dreaded rewatching. Of course, yeah. I, I'm at the tail end of uh, which more which Spielberg's I'm gonna rewatch for this thing, and we're almost done with right. Yeah, I have quite a few more to go, but it's okay. I, I, I still remember that uh, the two of you forced me to watch City Heat during the Eastwood uh, uh, podcast. So. I still hold that against you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, that was a rough one, but you know what? We we watched all of the Eastwoods, including Hang 'Em High, and uh, what were the other worst ones? Uh, Pink Cadillac was pretty bad. Pink Cadillac was pretty bad. Oh, Bernadette Peters was cute though. So. Oh my god! Wait, City Heat. I completely forgot about. Wow, I struck this movie from my memory. <laughs> oh, I completely forgot about this one. Wait, don't they dress up as furries to infiltrate a party at the end? Like a bordello. A yeah, like a... Like... Wow. That was such a great movie. Thanks for reminding us of that. <laughs> yeah, I've always, I've always had a soft spot for Bernadette Peters because she was in the first R-rated movie I ever went to see. The Jerk? I, I sn- well, I didn't sneak in, but I just lied about my age. Was it The Jerk? I to see The Jerk. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Love The Jerk. Um, I base my entire adult life on the jerk yeah i've done a good job yeah uh so thanks to weird ai for the theme song thanks weird ai uh don't mistake them for weird all our our social media links are uh on whatever wherever the hell you're listening to this gab parlor twitch getter instagram facebook spotify youtube letterbox yep all of those oh yeah we we are on letterbox so join us on letterbox and um follow us and whatnot yeah anyway thanks listener for listening uh, Rick, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're don't hang up. We're gonna stop recording, and uh, thank, we'll, thank you again. I enjoyed it. Of course, anytime. Should we stop? Yeah. <laughs>